Section 4 of A Bunch of Keys, Where They Were Found, and What They Might Have Unlocked, a Christmas book, edited by Tom Hood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Zarina Silverman, Los Angeles, California. The Bunch of Keys, The Ring, by T. W. Robertson, Chapter 4. Concerning the ghost and how we went inside it. When I recovered consciousness, it was daylight, and Bob was standing over me, stuffing snowballs in my mouth and scrubbing my temples. That's right, Steve, said Bob. I was frightened to death when I found I couldn't rouse you. Have a bit of bread and a snowball. It's all there is for breakfast. It's left off snowing, and we've the day before us to find out where we are. I took a crust and told Bob of the ghost. What? cried Bob, his eyes and his mouth rounding like saucers. A mile high! Or more, I continued, with red fire flashing from his eyes and a white cloak drawn over its head and shoulders. Bob immediately divested himself of his Rolla's shirt and Turkish trousers. I'll wear these things and paint my face no more, said he. I think I have mentioned that he had his own clothes underneath his costume. Now, Steve, give us a hoist and I'll reconnoiter. Ghosts ain't allowed to come out by daylight, and if this one does and fires his flame at me, I'll say a prayer and defy the devil and all his works. Bob, who had an invincible spirit, was soon out at the top of our cave, and he shouted, Steve! I, I see the ghost! And he laughed. Do you? Yes, it is a lighthouse. A what? A lighthouse! Don't you remember that picture we had in the Tales of the Sea? This one is exactly like it. Come up! Bob, who had been seated on the edge of the roof of our cave, rose to his feet and shouted, Steve! What? We're at sea! I scrambled up, and Bob lifted me to my feet. To the left, I saw the monster that had so frightened me the night before. It was, as he said, a lighthouse, the crown over its lantern capped with snow, and its sides white with the drift. The wind took away my breath. I looked forward, and I saw the ocean tossing and rolling towards us, a ship with a white sail in the distance. I had never before seen the sea, and I fell. Bob again applied his infallible snowball remedy, and brought me to. I found that we were on a cliff. On the rock opposite, Detached from the mainland by a narrow stream stood the lighthouse. Had Bob not fallen into the gully in which we had passed the night, we should have walked to the extreme verge of the cliff and, blinded by the snow, been precipitated into the boiling sea below. No, Steve, said Bob. We should have been saved by those who put the lighthouse there to mark the track. No, Bob. We were saved by him who gave men mind and strength to build the lighthouse. A voice was borne upon the wind, which roared out in tones of thunder. Oi! The figure of a man stood at the door of the lighthouse, smoking a pipe. He motioned to us to descend the cliffs, and we immediately obeyed him. He descended some steps cut in the rock, got into a boat, and pushed himself down the stream. He was an elderly man, in a blue worsted shirt, and yellow fustian trousers, made short in the legs, but uncommonly full behind. Now you buys, he said, who are you? We told him the whole truth, 
for the events of the past night had been a warning to us. "'You're a couple of beauties, you are,' said the man. "'Young drunkesses, and your father and mother in a nice way about you.' We explained that we had no mother. "'Well, your father, then. I ought to know. Jump in and I'll give you some breakfast. You look half-starved. Then you must write to your father.' If you don't, I'll give you up to the Coast Guard, and I'll lock you in the black hole. We got into the boat, crossed the little river, and ascended the rocky steps into the lighthouse. It was a strange place, that lighthouse, with little staircases at the sides, and two round chambers, a living room, and a room to sleep in, one above the other, and the light chamber above all. The light was a revolving one. All the furniture was very neat and stowed away in perfect order. There were a great many brass hooks upon the wall, and everything looked as clean as if it had been just washed and stowed away, or as if it were on the point of going on a long journey, and space was a great consideration. The man gave us some coffee and bread and a herring. We fell to and ate heartily, though the wind was roaring and the sea lashing outside as if they wanted to get in at us. "'I'm one of the light-keepers,' the man said. "'My mate's married and out on a holiday to spend the Christmas with his wife.' I'm a widower, I am. Been a widower these ten years, so I'm all alone here. If I were your father, I should give you a taste of two-inch. Bob and I buried our noses in our cups. I know what it is to lose barons. I had a boy, just such a lad as you. And he looked at Bob. He was drowned in a smack eight years sin, and I only lost my little patience last October. I saw that he had a bit of black crepe round his arm. And I felt surprised that a man, with trousers made so large behind, could have so much feeling. He seemed to like to talk. I suppose that being so much alone, he was pleased with company. I shall show you his gravestone, my boys, I mean, tomorrow, when we go to church. When we had finished breakfast, he made us wash up the cups, which I thought rather a liberty. Then he turned Bob out and made me write to my father, to say where we were and how sorry we felt. Then he turned me out and made Bob read him the letter I had written. We remained the whole of that day in the lighthouse, and watched the cleaning and trimming of the lamp, and the next day, being a fair, bright, breezy Sunday, he took us to a squat little church, built upon a high cliff, with a Union Jack flying from its tower. The congregation was composed of coast guardsmen and fishermen and sailors and their families, and all the men, and even the women, and the children, looked very clean and red and salt, and, as it were, stowed away, like the furniture in the lighthouse. Even the pulpit, which in my mind was always associated with the Reverend Dewhurst, was occupied by an old gentleman with a high square nose like a cliff and a pair of light blue eyes the colour of seawater. We, that is, Bob and I, attracted considerable notice, and when the service was over the old clergyman inquired who we were, as indeed did all the congregation. The lightkeeper showed us the grave of his wife and son, and pointed to the inscription with his prayer book. The names on the stone were Patience and John Samuel Strongatham, and I read that the boy was drowned when he was aged fifteen. Yes, fifteen, fifteen, said the lightkeeper, looking at Bob. There seems somehow something right in a man as lost his son at sea, keeping a light has saved so many vessels to and from the narrow, don't there? I looked round. But the man's eyes and thoughts were quick and followed me. 
I ain't a-going to have no stone put up for my gal for the next ten months, he said. I ventured to ask why not. Tain't regular. What did she die of, sir? Aggie. The doctor said it wasn't, but it was. Aggie. The lightkeeper, Mr. Strongathorm, took us to dine with a friend of his at the station, a row of cottages with a flagstaff and vane before them, where the coast guardsmen, the officers who capture the bold smugglers of the ocean, are quartered, and which, like the church, was on top of a cliff. It seemed to be considered the genteel thing to live upon the top of the cliff in order, I suppose, to be near the wind. The friend we dined with was, we were told, the first boatman, or chief boatman, I forget which, and he wore a gold anchor on his sleeve. I had often read in plays of first officer, first lord, etc., and this man, Saunders by name, really was a first boatman, though he by no means realized my expectations. Almost immediately after dinner, Mr. Strongathorm took us back to the lighthouse and set about his work, polishing and cleaning. He then gave us some tea and made Bob and I alternately read chapters from the Bible. "'I always sit over my Bible of a Sunday night,' he said. "'My little patients used to read it to me, and if I can't read it myself, being no scullard, I like to look over it.' I was about to speak when the old man took me up hastily. "'You're too quick, youngster, ever so much too quick. Your quickness'll bring you into trouble.' I know what you're thinking on. I could read the gravestone because I've been so often told what letters was cut on it. I can't read print, though I sit over my Bible all the same. Soon after this, he sent us to bed. The next morning, when we looked from the landward window at the side of our chamber, we hardly knew where we were, but thought the lighthouse had drifted out to sea and been cast upon some unknown coast. The snow had cleared away, and the tops of the cliffs and the country inland were of a bright green. "'Regular strong thaw,' remarked Mr. Strongathorm. "'A fish must be waiting to be catched, after such a frost. Can you buy his net?' We replied that if he meant fish with a net, we were proficient in the sport, as it was a favourite one with us at home. "'Aye, aye. I'll go with you to make the first cast, then I'll go down into the town.' Mr. Strongathorm always spoke of the town, a village containing a population of sixty souls, two shops, and about eight houses, as if it were a thronged metropolis. And bring you by some soft tack. Do you know what soft tack is? he asked me. No. Deary me, such a fine scullard as you not to know that. Why, I thought you had knowed everything. We left the lighthouse together, Bob and I carrying the net. After the first cast into a small freshwater stream, which was not very successful, Mr. Strongathorm said, No, you boys won't run away. Oh, no, sir. If you do, I'll set the coast guard out to you for sure. But you won't, will you? Honour. Honour. Then mind you catch a good lot, and we'll send some to Mrs. Sanders. I shan't be more than two hours gone. Left to ourselves, we threw our net and splashed with the pole to very little purpose. We only caught a few small roach and dace. We went higher up the stream, but with no better luck, and so more than an hour passed, and we thought of giving it up. One more throw, suggested Bob, and we threw in the net again. As we were hauling it in, I saw something on the opposite bank that so shook my nerves that my foot slipped and I fell into the water. I saw the old man whom we had seen standing at the gate of the large farmhouse with stone posts and chains before it. 
he was without his hat, and had no handkerchief, and was talking loudly to himself, and gesticulating violently. The expression of his eyes was horribly wild. He did not see us. We watched him run by the side of the bank, and leap a ditch with great agility. Then he turned round and looked at the water, and swore awfully, and then ran on again, and so out of sight. All this time I was up to my waist in the water. Bob soon had me out, and I stood shivering with cold. Bob offered to change trousers with me, but I would not accept his kindness. "'Let's take the net in,' said Bob, "'and by that time perhaps Mr. Strongthorn will be back.' We found that we had caught six or seven small perch and one large bream. "'Not worth the trouble,' I remarked. "'Steve!' said Bob. "'Yes. There is something else. In the net? Yes. What? A bunch of keys!' I looked down and saw that a bunch of keys had somehow or other got into the net and entangled itself in its meshes by means of the wards of the keys. It was not at all an extraordinary bunch of keys. There was a large ring with four keys hung upon it, and there was a smaller ring with three small keys fastened on it. The small ring was attached to the larger or outer ring, but the three small keys upon the smaller ring had no connection with the large keys on the large ring. "'Well, boys, what sport?' said the voice of Mr. Strongatharm. We showed him what we had caught, and he puzzled over the bunch of keys, and looked at them with his broad brown hand shading his eyes as if they were distant objects, say fishing boats in the offing. "'They're quite bright,' I remarked. "'They can't have been long in the water.' However, you must be getting into bed, youngster. You'll always be in trouble, you will. You're so sharp. So trudge homeward. When we had gained the lighthouse, Mr. Strongatharm ordered me into his own bed in the upper chamber and gave me a glass of hot rum and water with a large piece of salt butter, the salt sort of butter that could be churned from the milk of sea cows. I told him of the old man we had seen and where we found him on the night that we were lost. Ah! said Mr. Strongatharm. That was old Tilson. He's mad. He was drove so by racehorses and drink. He used to breed racehorses. When they used to win, he used to drink to drown himself for joy. When they used to lose, he used to drink to drown himself for aggravation. He's a bad old lot. He used to thrash his grooms when he was savage, and after his wife, she was a real lady, a real gentleman's daughter, ran away from him. He beat a stable boy that cruel that he killed him, and old Tilson was tried for it at the sizes. I wonder if the old rascal threw the keys into the stream. This set me thinking. Had old Tilson thrown away the keys after committing a murder? I looked for a bloodstain on the bunch, but there was none. Was he tried for murder? I inquired. Manslaughter. Councillor Spadrill got him off. Give me the keys. If anything turns up about them, they'll be found here. He hung them on to the end of a rope coiled round a hook immediately opposite the bed. Now you go to sleep, said Mr. Strongatharm. Your brother must not sleep with you, for if you catch the eggy, you might catch it too. We must make shift with him below. So turn to the wall and have a cock. So good. No, not good night. Good day. And the bunch of keys, I began. Never mind them. Perhaps they're the keys as opens Davy Jones's locker. Or perhaps they're the keys as locks up little boys' mouths. So go to sleep and don't think no more on them. But I could not help thinking more of them. 
though I went to sleep immediately. I awoke in two or three hours. It was night, and something before my eyes shone white like silver. It was the bunch of keys. There they hung on the end of the rope, bathed in the moonlight, which streamed in from the little window at the side of the chamber. They seemed to glare at me with an intense brilliance, as if the inside of their handles were eyes and saw me. Then again they looked like fish in the dark, bright, molten, and scaly. Then they were murderers hanging at Newgate. They quite frightened me. Perhaps it was the effect of my romantic and fervid temperament. Perhaps it was the rum and water. I fixed my eyes upon them till they seemed to illuminate the wall. They fascinated me. The wind seemed to be whistling through them. I thought of Bluebeard, Fatima, the Baron Trenick, and the castle of Otranto. I didn't know how long I lay looking at them, but what with the wind outside, the feeling that I was both at sea and on land, that I was sleeping in the middle of a long chimney, with water where the fireplace should be and flames at the top, that I was fixed in a burning lantern like the man in the moon, at last I began to fancy that the keys were alive, and walked, and talked, and had thoughts and feelings as I had, that they made love and promised things, and broke their promises, and were asked and given in marriage, fought duels, went to law, quarrelled with each other, and made it up again, loaded guns, and went out fishing, and so on, and so on, till I suppose I fell asleep, and dreamt dreams, something like the stories that here follow. End of chapter 4